0: Hi, listeners. Last week began the trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd last summer, sparking renewed activism and calls for racial justice. Days before the trial, eight people, six of whom were Asian women, were murdered by a white terrorist in Atlanta, Georgia, while they were at work. Those of us who identify as people of color feel the familiarity of despair, anxiety, and fear. And on a personal note, It is heartbreaking to see elders in our community suffer, to hear about the close to 4,000 reported anti-Asian hate crimes just this year alone, and to bear witness, like all of you, to racist rhetoric in the media, in our neighborhoods, and even in the highest political office.
1: And so, before we begin our show today, we just want to reiterate that we recognize that play is often a privilege. And not everyone is afforded that luxury to play in the same ways or in the same flexibility and freedom. When we imagined this podcast, our goal was to advocate for play, for play as a site of social change. And in this moment, we believe that creativity and play really does expand our social imagination. It helps us confront the conditions of today, and it invites us to ask new and thankfully different questions. It's obvious. I mean, we cannot tackle today's problems with the same kinds of thinking, with the same methods or the same modalities. And so, In the spirit of this week's guest, John Jackson, we really wonder, can play and creativity, multimodal narrative, storytelling, new ways of engagement, can these things open up spaces for an awakening, for a reckoning, or for a transformation to something different? We've compiled some multimodal resources that we've been engaging with on the topic, and and we shared them on the Pop and Play website, which can be found at tc.edu slash popandplay. If you've got some other resources or suggestions, please tweet them to us.
0: In this episode, we talk a lot about multimodality. And by multimodality or multimodal scholarship, we mean using media and forms of expression that go beyond traditional writing.
1: So our guest this week is John Jackson. He's an anthropologist, a filmmaker, and the dean of the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: In our conversation,
1: we learn that scholarship is itself an act of play, that at the intersection of play and art and making is that space for disruption and interruption. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pop and Play. I'm Nathan Holbert, uh, Assistant Professor of Communication, Media, and Learning Technologies Design at Teachers College.
0: Hi, I'm Haney Yoon, and I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Curriculum and Teaching at Teachers College and on a sabbatical. Very exciting.
1: Very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) And we are super excited to welcome John Jackson with us today from the University of Pennsylvania. John?
2: It's wonderful to be here. It's great to be in conversation with you. I'm, for folks who don't know, I'm an anthropologist and filmmaker and currently Dean of the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And excited um, to be in dialogue.
1: Well, we're very excited to have you here today uh, to talk with us about play and, and play how it as it works in, in your, your research and in your life. We'd like to start pop and play when possible with some sort of playful activity to, to kind of get us going and get us <laughs> thinking about play. So here's the idea, and we'll see how this works over audio. But, but the idea is that I'm going to give you a couple different scenarios that I suspect you've encountered at some point in your life. And uh, I'm going to suggest four possible animated GIF reactions that you could provide to that particular situation. So I'll try to describe those. You can, of course, see those animated GIFs. And then if you could just you know, tell us which one you choose and tell us why, that would be, that'd be great. Okay. Excellent. Perfect. Okay, cool. So, uh, first situation, and this is one I'm, I'm feeling deeply these days. You just sat in a two-hour meeting that definitely should have been an email. Which animated gif do you respond with? Uh, Michelle Obama scrolling through her phone before glancing up with a are-you-still-here look on her face? <laughs> Jared from Silicon Valley looking sadly out of an office window? Is it Bruce Lee squeezing his fists of fury? Or Andy Richter looking a bit stressed, but shrugging, it's fine.
2: <laughs> I love it. These are all great. And I will, I will say there are versions of each one of these that I can appreciate and can see being easy to incorporate into one's response in that scenario. But I will say part of what I like to tell people is that you know, one of the keys to being a full-time administrator is you have to have stamina for meetings. And I can do meetings. <laughs> I often tell people it's the ethnographer in me. Um, you know. So for me, the meeting is both about what the ostensible topic is we're discussing, but it's also me getting to know my interlocutors. So I, I never mind long meetings because I feel like I'm learning all these other things. So, so I guess there's a version of that that would make me think that the closest to that goal is that it's fine, where I know... <laughs> really, we don't have the time for all these meetings. But there is something I think I want to pull out of it. And often I do. And, and it never bothers me when I have, you know, more time for meetings, because I realize that's part of what separates someone who can do this job well from someone who pull all their hair out in the process, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, that, that, definitely, that definitely seems to be um, increasingly important now when we're not around each other mm-hmm, to find ways mm-hmm. to be able to be around each other, right? Exactly.
0: I mean, that's a great way to get through it, too, is doing ethnography in meetings.
2: Oh, my, my, <laughs> my students would tell you, i will tell them everything's ethnography. <laughs> it's all ethnography, all the way down, as they say. Mm. Um, but I think it's also a way to, to remind yourself that, you know, it's, very little is just a waste of time, you know? Mm. Um, it's sort of about what you can do with it and how innovatively um, you can repurpose, right, and parlay. But um, some of that's mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, trying to find a way to turn lemons into lemonade, but I think some of it's also just a sensibility, a mentality that makes sense.
1: The next scenario, a student refers to you in class by a nickname. Is it David from Schitt's Creek saying, wow, who are you? <laughs> Michael Jordan in a 1980s PSA calmly but firmly stating, stop it, get some help. John Oliver with a deadpan look to the camera, Cool. Or Tracy Morgan in the movie Cop out shaking his head saying no, no, hell, no, repeatedly.
2: <laughs> this is a good one, they're all really good. I, I, I guess for me, um, I, I love the John Oliver cool, right you know, I think I think one of the things one has to maintain, especially in a classroom setting um, is some semblance of decorum. So you can't just go crazy with you know the nose and the yelling. but but I also am always curious about, how and why students make the decisions they make about how to talk to folks. So so for me I'm I'm learning and wow is maybe this this moment of realizing I just got some new data about this student about how they think about this relationship or something like that.
1: Right. Yeah, there's the there's that. the there's the how do you respond uh, for real, and then there's the, like, what's going on inside your head when that happens.
2: <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Probably all of it's going on at once in my head in a way, right? right. I guess it depends on what the nickname is, right? So, that, so we, we might need more specificity there. But. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, I love that. I feel like the cool actually communicates a lot of different things, and so it's sort of mysterious.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. It can go in any number of directions, right? You kinda, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for doing that. And I have to say that I need to compliment you on your impression of David from Schitt's Creek. You did that very well. <laughs> I'll take so that as a, a compliment, you, I guess, Nathan. as opposed to a diss. Uh-huh. There's, there's a future for you and it's bright. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for playing that. That was really fun, actually. <laughs> no, very
2: cool. And I have to admit, I don't use, though. I don't use any gifts, really. I don't know why. Oh, I have yeah. a lot of folks who work in the office who use them, and I always find them funny, but...
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. Um, okay, so I think we can shift gears a little bit, and um, I thought that maybe we'd start with this question, just to help us get to know you a little bit better. Um, can you talk, talk to us about how your interest in filmmaking started?
2: Great go- um, can I even remember? Now? I feel like I've always been interested in film although i realized there were, there's also a moment before film when i was heavy into radio so i grew up in new york brooklyn new york in my junior year i had a effectively my own radio talk show in new york fm radio actually um called the jackson attraction it was so
0: much no fun. way
2: um it, awesome. i mean it really I, I i used to teasingly tell people it was clearly the pinnacle of my professional career um <laughs> Because at first, you know, I was just the host of the show. We did whatever. We just did zany things. I had before then thought I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Uh, I, I was never funny, right? But I didn't let that deter me. So I would sneak out of the house um, as a high school kid. And I was in sort of southern Brooklyn. So it took a long time to get to Manhattan. But I would get there and kind of do my sets. And then I'd, go, I'd record them. Then I'd come back and work on them and then go out again. And as a kind of side hustle, as it were, I decided I got in my head that I was going to send these recorded um, stand-up sets to local radio stations. I don't know why I thought that it made any sense. Like, and made with a letter saying, hey, I'm a high school kid who's funny, who wants to do radio, and if you have any like," And for some crazy cockamamie reason, I get a letter back from 91.5 FM in New York saying, you know what, if you want to do it, come and we'll figure something out. So they gave me... By the time I graduated, I think I was only at six hours a week and doing just zany things. Like, I would do things like bring a television into the studio and just watch TV on the radio. and you know I was clearly ahead of my time. But, but that got me really excited about the power of communication, what media does. We reached a lot of people. And then when I left to go to Howard in D.C., I brought all of my shows down to D.C. And Howard at the time had the number one they might still have the number one radio station in that market. And um, I basically went to their radio station and said, you know, I'm here from New York. Clearly I'm a big deal. You all need to sort of part the waters. And they were like, no. <laughs> and, and at that point I I've never been in a radio state station on my own show again, but I got the film bug. And so I did communication as an undergraduate um, was really interested in learning how to tell stories and images and sound and just never let it go. And, And I actually never wanted to be an academic, but I got brainwashed one summer um, by a program in D.C. that said we need more academics of color to get PhDs. And at that point, I didn't even know what a PhD was. I learned that summer that at the top tier programs, they would even pay for you to matriculate if you got in. So I said, well, if I don't have to spend any more money, instead of going out to the West Coast, which a lot of my friends were doing, um, you know, maybe I can... I can get more stories about the world that would make me a better filmmaker, make me a better storyteller. And I thought anthropology, that had a history of film and anthropology, visual anthropology, it allowed me to kind of have my cake and eat it. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I married my interest that I was building in film and it is an undergrad. And so that's kind of how I got into film. Out of radio, always interested in kind of multimodal work in a lot of different ways and um, and was actually open to being in front of the camera, too, although um, always was much more interested in being the the the, art, the author, right? The person trying to craft it.
0: I mean, we have to start with Radio Jackson. Right? Um, one, <laughs> the Jackson how do we...
2: attraction. The Jackson, Jackson attraction. attraction,
0: yes. How do we bring that back to 91.5 FM, <laughs> if you're listening? <laughs>
2: I, I have no sense of how many people really were listening. I just made sure my family didn't listen, because I feel like, you know, <laughs> even, even now, the, the conceit I use for anything I do really is, and I'm usually right about this, is I can write it, I can film, because that, most people will never see it. So I don't got to worry about it. Um, once I start thinking about who might be listening, who might be watching, it can a little bit more difficult. I think I have too many sort of voices and audiences in my head. So it was great. My, I knew that my family wasn't listening. So then, you know, everything was on the table at that point. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there's so many parallels to what you're talking about and what's happening now, because I think about you bringing your TV into your radio station room and recording, watching TV. That's just like modern-day Netflix party, right? That's what's happening mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that. Exactly. Or when you know when young people record things on YouTube and you're watching along with them or when people are playing video games or opening toys and seeing all of that stuff it's just so interesting how the tools have changed but the way that we engage and socialize and all of that has just expanded um no, but it's right. you know it's such an interesting parallel what you're doing there i mean you're in early innovator of some of these
1: things (laughs) that was really fun to hear about all the different kinds of radio work that you were doing and the movies that you were doing it's also fun to hear about how you know you mentally put yourself in a space where you're where you're free to explore you're free to experiment you're free to play in those spaces um i wonder if you could say a little bit about you know you said you didn't set off to be an academic at all. You kind of found your way, uh, you know, from for all sorts of different sort of sliding door moments, maybe. But I'm curious about that sort of mindset, that sort of way of of, of playing that has been such a core part of how you create. Um, how does that show up in in the way that you do your work today, as an academic?
2: Um, um, that's a, I feel like that's a very hard question. But um, but but I do think there's a version of of what I think for me was the best bit of advice I got in graduate school that I still try to tell my grad students that's central to my answer to that question, which is like, however you do the academy, however you do your version of a life of the mind as a graduate student is the way you will likely do it even once you're a full professor somewhere at tenure. So if you haven't figured out a way to incorporate play and fun and the stuff that makes you whole into your research and writing process as a graduate student, when that's all you're really responsible for, right, Um, professionally at least, then it's going to be much more difficult to think you're going to be able to find a way or even have the facility later on to do any of that. So, So for me, it's about finding moments to continue to do the stuff that buoys me. And a lot of it's media, a lot of it's film and TV and um, it's also theater, and, and my Deb is uh, my partner. Was a dancer with Urban Bushwoman for a long time, and so she's trying to figure out like, how do you continue to short circuit the the sort of really impoverished distinction people make between, say, the arts and the sciences, right? Um, between play and work, and how do we think constructively about the new things we can imagine and imagine into being in the world when we don't over rely on those distinctions too comfortably. And I think for me, that means every day saying, you know, I want to make sure I'm doing things that, that really nourish me in a holistic way, um, not just meeting deadlines that are otherwise meaningless to me, because that seems, that seems like a tough thing. I mean, it would be impossible, at least for me, to imagine that's something I would want to do on a long-term basis, on a long-term basis you know.
0: Hmm. I mean, I really appreciate that answer, because it's making me think about how Early on when I was doing research in schools and researching play, I think I always felt compelled to have to tie that in with learning or development or some kind of goal that's related within that institution. Um, And I think as I'm growing and trying to learn more um, about ethnography and play and qualitative research and what play actually really means, Um, that sometimes it doesn't have to necessarily be tied into these very specific goals or ways that you're going to make it valuable. Um, And I think about that because our original question was, how do you make space for play and loosen the boundaries within the institution? And maybe not everything has to be within the institution, right? Like maybe some things and acts of play can be unbound in other areas of your life, and that's what helps you sustain your work in the institution, but that doesn't have to necessarily be that... You know, A to B sort of thing. So I do appreciate that a lot.
2: No, I appreciate that response.
0: I, I, and I do realize people have different
2: ways of of answering the question, different ways of operationalizing investments and in what you all are calling play. Um, and so it's also realizing it's not one size fits all either, right? Um, it's kind of finding the stuff that that you know lightens you and that and that keeps you moving in these ways that aren't reducible maybe to what we think are the strictures of an institutional academic environment too. But.
1: The process of kind of playing, tinkering, cutting, uh, moving things around in film and in, in, in uh, audio production, like uh, it's certainly a thing that we do when we write papers and, and all that. But I'm just kind of wondering if there's any aspect of the, the actual process and practice um, that, that is a very playful process and practice in, in certain types of work whether or not you find it's useful for the way you think about um, topics you want to explore deeply or the way in which you uh, structure arguments or or whatever it is?
2: I think that is a really good question and and a tough one. It it reminds me of an attempt we've been a part of here at Penn to build out a version of what folks have been calling curiosity studies. And, you know, you can push back against this distinction, but one of the ways in which I found that project helpful is in the ways in which um, it tries to make a case, for instance, that there are similarities between, say, curiosity and what academics usually talk about as innovation maybe, Um, and that there's a version of what innovation is, which is a version of creativity always already linked to the market, right, to kind of how it can be monetized, to what its value and function is, and that there are forms of creativity that are far too sort of lazy and haphazard than that. Um, And that therefore might be undervalued, right? Because you can't immediately tie them to some end, some goal. And so part of what I think we've been trying to figure out is what are the different, what's the kind of fungibility intrinsic to the notion of creativity that allows it to do all of the stuff we might imagine can link to the bottom line, to some sort of productive end game, while also recognizing it doesn't have to come at the expense of also being very excited about, you know, what might be ultimately a complete, quote unquote, waste of time, but might be enriching in other ways, right? Curiosities that don't seem as obviously attuned to what we think productivity entails. And to know that they're both valuable, they're different. And you want to sort of recognize if you're in one domain thinking you're in the other, then you're in the wrong place, but that they're both necessary And to try to find a balance between the versions of investments in curiosity um, that are always tethered to something we know is going to be incredibly valuable to the world and the stuff that you just really want to keep examining. And And we have all these examples, I think, of almost pathological curiosity, right? Curiosity that isn't as structured, isn't as disciplined as we want it to be. And there's a version of that, I think, that does map onto the play question. Because, right? you know, someone like Robin Kelly, you know, when I was in grad school, was often talking about the extent to which in a sort of impoverished context where um, folks on the bottom, especially black, brown and black bodies in urban areas who have been forgotten um, and where the job market is dried up, they turn play into the only viable aspiration for what might be imagined as work options. Right. So it's basketball, it's football how difficult will it be for any kid, no matter how good you are, to make the NBA or the NFL? But when all the other jobs dry up, play has, in some ways, play f- takes its place. And I think there's a version of that dynamic that's also in the center of your question for me, because I think it's about recognizing that play is valuable as long as we understand on whose terms the mm-hmm. play is taking place and in service to what ends, For and the ends might be in, exclusively psychological, it might simply be about trying to, you know, since, um, since we've been home um, with the kids um, more because of the pandemic, we've been playing more card games and board games. and They even do puzzles. I'm not a puzzle person, so I just make fun of them when they do puzzles, but they <laughs> even do puzzles. And, and I think there's a version of all of those things that I have to admit, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm an ethnographer, I'm constantly thinking about kind of what, what are the implicit cultural assumptions that bound this, that give it its form and meaning. But I think there's another version of what's happening there that's just building, continuing to develop relationships and continuing to understand yourself better. And I think all that stuff is already packed into what we think play is. And, and the folks who study it well, I think, do a really good job at reminding us we should be curious about that. And that play is another example of that curiosity. And there's a version, I think, of play being immediately monetized, right, or, or, or turned into a road that leads directly to professions and productivity that is inevitable, but we want to make sure we're thinking purposefully and carefully about the implications of moving along one or other sort of trajectory of what we think play implies about what happens afterwards, right? What happens afterwards afterwards could be I win the game so I can gloat for, you know, a week until we play again. Um, Or it could mean I'm thinking I can put myself in position to actually turn this into something either research wise or that goes beyond simply, you know, the, the benefit I get from saying I'm the best Spades player in the house this week or something. You know, I don't know if you all are card players, but
0: Nathan is I'm not.
1: It's been a while, but I definitely grew up playing spades with my with my family all the time, in, in rural Missouri. <laughs>
0: um, and I think it's important that you frame that in terms of curiosity. It really reminds me of um, Vivian Paley. She's an early childhood educator, and she talks to she t- always talked about how it's curiosity that we model for kids. And a lot of times what happens is it's evaluation and productivity or getting somewhere that we often model or show. Um, and so I think that is really important. Um, I wanted to ask you um, this question. Would, I would be remiss if I didn't get to this, but um, there's an artist, auth, artist activist, um, Professor Theaster Gates, um, and he talks about um, the place of art creativity. And I think for you also expands to multimodal scholarship um, and creation and products and how it helps us reimagine or remake what the current conditions of the world are. And so he has this great quote, and I'm not going to butcher it, so I wrote it down. Um, He says, art has the ability to help us imagine the world we all live in is really just today's condition. And he talks about how the world is like Right for a remaking and a redoing and a reimagining. And I can't think of how much how important that is right now in this particular moment. Um, and so I just wanted to hear from you about what you think the space of multimodal scholarship or art and creativity can have um, in speaking today to today's condition. i and I'm going back to the beginning when you talk about, comedy, right? And I think comedy is also an art form, right? Stand-up comedy is an art form. I think about your book, Racial Paranoia, and that whole chapter you have about Dave Chappelle. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who have been talking about the art of comedy in speaking about race and speaking about, you know, tensions that that exist right now in the world. And so what do you think can be the potential of multimodality and creative arts and Um, and that scholarship
2: and speaking to today's condition. I mean, so part of me does believe that multimodal scholarship is the future of the academy full stop. Like, I don't know if that's 10 years from now, it becomes normative, 50 years from now. I think it's inevitable. I think the the question is, do we go into that future kicking and screaming, right? And lamenting the days of yore when there were only seven journals and, um, or... Are we more purposeful and proactive about what form it should take, and how we use this um, these opportunities they didn't have before to the fullest? And so, for me, I do believe that there's a version of what multimodal offers that's about potentially bringing into the world, bringing into the academy, bringing to life things that have never existed before, and and that's exciting, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's being able that there's a commitment to being able to imagine what isn't even possible now um, that I think the multimodal gestures toward, um, especially in an academic context, right, which is to say there isn't even necessarily a model for what I'm trying to do, um, but, I, but one of the things we can boast, I think, as a species is the ability to image things, to aspire to things that aren't tangible, that aren't real, um, and, and I think that's a version of what Multimodal kind of represents to me. It's it, it's a version of saying, let's keep pushing. Let's keep moving to see what this can become, um, to see how how wide we can open up this space to other folks who may not otherwise think it, it was built for them, and maybe it wasn't built for them, but who can do some really transformative work under its auspices. And to me, that is really exciting. It's something um, that I think we... Um, We we miss out on if we just imagine the multimodal discussion is about whether or not you train students to make films or um, or you incorporate dance or graphic arts. Yeah, that's it. But that's really just the beginning of a much more profound conversation about what intellectuality even is. You know, about what scholarship can be, um, and about who controls the terms on which it changes and evolves in the twenty first century. And I think the multimodal. Packed into that sort of multi-syllabic term is all of that stuff, and I think the implications are pretty significant. And at least I want to imagine our job is to continue to push ourselves to see what its utility might really allow us to do and to say about the world, you know, and to bring into um, existence in the world. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great a great call for future researchers and, you know, students, and even myself, I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, am I, you know, reifying just things that have been already said or in the past, or am I thinking about and imagining new futures? Um, And I think that's really important. Okay. So we only have a couple more minutes with you. Um, and so we. this podcast is called Pop and Play because we like to end start with play and end with pop culture. Um, and so our question is, what's poppin'? Um, <laughs> and the, I, the idea behind the question is something in pop culture right now that is um, exciting to you or that's been on your radar or something that you've been thinking about. Um, and so I, I'll i give an example of what I've been thinking about a lot lately. And this might be, you know, I think people can collectively agree. Um, but right now I've been really into Bernie Sanders's inaugural look and all the different memes <laughs> that have arisen from that has been awesome. And I think at first, while I was watching the inauguration, I was thinking, oh my gosh, look at those mittens. <laughs> those mittens are <laughs> hardcore. And I did not realize that Millions of other people are thinking the same thing. And so I think that's been really fun for me to look at. And so in honor of memes starting off our, or gifts and memes starting off our time together, I end with that.
2: (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. I feel like so much has been, um, so much attention um, has been placed on the political that it's it's hard to even think of. I'm trying to get so Bernie Sanders is a good one, and I, I love the clubs. I'm trying to think of something non sort of politics related. I feel like I want to, but I, I I'm trying. So you you know what I've been I and I know I'm fixated on this because we're doing a documentary on it. I'm fixated on um, sort of the the changing nature of television itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know one of the things we did a while ago was interview all the living. Um, former heads of HBO that founded it in the 70s. And mm-hmm. they, I mean, they talk about the founding of HBO in such amazingly dramatic ways. I mean, really, I mean, we're, we're, gonna, we're doing a documentary on sort of how it transformed television and American culture in the 70s. But um, it, it really should be like an AMC Mad Men-esque <laughs> serial about like, television execs and, and American culture because it really is incredible. And everyone's a character. But there's a version, I think, of what Netflix and Hulu and all the newest ones I don't even know represent that really is changing how we even imagine we approach sort of televisual popular culture, and to me that's mm-hmm. fascinating. And see how quickly yeah. it's moving.
0: Well, so what have you been streaming on HBO?
2: Uh, oh, everything, and I, and I love sci-fi, so I just finished Star Trek: Discovery, mm-hmm. which is also pretty good in the in this season. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I haven't, I haven't gotten into Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery very much, but I did watch um, recently. I it was a little late to it, but I did watch the, um, the Picard series, and I thought that was pretty interesting and fun to. to I,
2: go I did, I, I did too. I liked that one. Yeah, and 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 push comes to shove, to be honest, I'm more of a Star Wars than a Star Trek person, but mm. but I like sci-fi, so I, I keep <laughs> So we certainly watched The Mandalorian.
1: Yes, absolutely. For, because this is audio, y- y'all can't see that Haney and I are both like, yeah, Star Wars.
0: <laughs> I mean, we spent like half an episode of talking about Star Wars last time.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is actually pop and play, but also a Star Wars appreciation podcast. I think. Yeah. Inspirational from sort of the television, uh, I watched... When it first came out, uh, the Good Place, the TV show, The Good Place. That's but I've just started goodness. rewatching it again because it's just, you know, sometimes you need to sort of like find yourself in a, a place where you can laugh and you can smile and you can feel good about things. And that show, I think, is such a smart, uh, hilarious, delightful show that that I find myself frequently. Even again, even though I've seen it, even though I know most of the jokes, laughing out loud uh, still to it, and that feels very cathartic <laughs> and nice right now.
2: I agree, and and so philosophical, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it just it's very deep, like you know, it's, it's surprisingly deep too. You know, I, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of that show. Maybe I'll go back and rewatch that.
1: That's a great one. I just rewatched the other night the episode where they um, they they uh simulate the trolley problem. <laughs> Pie, all getting inside of a trolley and actually just like running people over again and again and again and it is so hilarious and so ridiculous and yet so profound it's wonderful no, agreed
2: agreed agreed
0: Well thank you this was a good fork in time
2: Oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Now, it was I, I, I do feel like if if one way you gauge the success of what you all are doing is how fun and play fill the experiences for your interlocutor I definitely think this was a success it was fun to, to talk with you all for a little bit and hang and, and I'm glad you're doing it so keep 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 doing it and I hope it doesn't feel too much like work for you although maybe that's not not a bad thing too <laughs> <laughs> thank you
1: very much John for being here this was a lot of fun so, talking to you
2: thanks you all yeah you thank too thank you very much and um and hopefully we'll chat again soon in, in yeah. person at some point maybe yeah, later yeah. That'd be great to see
1: you again
0: Yes, definitely. Bye,
1: thank John. Thanks. Thanks, you all.
0: He was so fun to talk to. Holy cow.
1: Thanks to Dean John Jackson for joining us this week, and thank you all for listening. This episode was edited by Lucius Van Ju and Joe Rina Ferry. Pop and Play is produced by Haney Yoon, Lalitha Vasudevan, Joe Rina Ferry, and myself, Nathan Holbert at Teachers College, Columbia University, with the Digital Futures Institute. For a transcript and to learn more, visit tc.edu slash pop and play. Our music is selections from Leaf Eaters by Pottington Bear, used here under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial license. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.